Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Carrie Dioulis. Dr. Dioulis is a board-certified orthopedic spinal surgeon practicing near Cleveland, Ohio. She enjoys practicing patient-centered medicine rather than the traditional disease-centered model. She was featured in the documentary called Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead 2. Dr. Dioulis is also a thriving type 1 diabetic who uses a low-carb vegan keto diet with specialized insulin strategies to manage her diabetes. Carrie, thank you so much for coming on to today. Oh, no, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, we've got so much to talk about because, I mean, just with your intro there, I think people can understand that. So you're a practicing surgeon, you are a type 1 diabetic, but you also follow the low-carb community, the keto community, and the vegan community. And, and, you know, on your website too, I I see that you do sort of lifestyle medicine, so you talk about sleep, stress management. Oh, there's so many good things we can talk about today. So I'm really glad I got you on. Oh, absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So to begin with, I think for listeners, because you're my first type 1 diabetic patient who's been on the show. So could you just explain to people what is the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Yes. So type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition most of the time where the body attacks the beta cells. So the pancreas is the organ that creates insulin and beta cells are the cells that create insulin. And in type 1 diabetes, there's an autoimmune reaction that happens and the beta cells get destroyed and damaged and the body loses the ability to produce enough insulin and sometimes entirely can't produce any insulin at all. Type 2 diabetes, on the other hand, is related to insulin resistance of the muscle cells and the liver and the fat cells. And so the beta cells in the beginning are still able to produce enough insulin. In fact, they start to produce a lot of insulin so that they can overcome this insulin resistance. So, you know, we always describe it as insulin resistance is where the key doesn't fit in to the lock. And so the body sort of bombards it with a lot of keys trying to find you know, a way to get glucose into the cells because excess glucose, which is sugar around in the blood is sticky. I always describe it to patients as what happens when you give a toddler a sucker, you get sticky everywhere. And the same sort of thing happens in our bodies where we get these advanced glycation end products, which are what happens when there's elevated blood sugars. And even in the spine world, we've had this these recent studies that have shown that elevated blood sugars independent of diabetes and obesity lead to advanced glycation end products, which lead to spine degeneration. So, you know, these abnormal blood sugars, which can happen anytime we eat a large carbohydrate load until the body can deal with it, can actually play a role in even spinal degeneration. So for a type 2 diabetic, most type 2 diabetics have some sort of obesity going along with it, although there are thinner um, type 2 diabetics. And originally, we used to think that type 1 diabetes was a juvenile condition, and type 2 diabetes was 
you know, as we got older, but we're starting to see now more and more kids that are type two diabetics. And I was actually diagnosed type one as an adult. And there's more studies that are indicating that actually the incidence of type one can occur throughout life. And there are probably quite a few type twos that it's assumed that there are type two, but they may actually be a type one because they rapidly need to be on insulin. And then it gets even more complicated in that a type one can become a type one and a type two if they develop insulin resistance later in life. And a type two, when their pancreas stops being able to produce enough insulin or any insulin, it starts to gradually go down as the beta cells start to sort of get exhausted for, you know, lack of a, a better term. Um, they sort of become type two, type ones without the autoimmune component. So, well, wow. long discussion <laughs> of complex, but effectively, I have an autoimmune condition. My pancreas doesn't produce insulin anymore. So I have to give myself insulin. And, you know, there are some strategies to, to know, deal with that. To deal with that. Mm. But, you know, there's no diet at this stage that we've seen or found that are going to change the fact that my pancreas doesn't work and I have to give myself insulin. Mm. So, I mean, you shared already such good information there. And that was going to be one of my questions was when were you diagnosed? And as you said, it was only when you were an adult, because that is something I have come across. Because when I, you know, when I was learning physiology, it was the same thing. You always think type one is a juvenile condition, like a, a child's condition. So that's when it's picked up in childhood. But it seems strange, like, wow, so you could, so you only get diagnosed as an adult. And that's incredible to think you could go that long and then only get a type one. So what do you think happens there? Are you, so as a child, you didn't have diabetes or did you have diabetes? Or is it that it's suddenly, you, it's when you had that autoimmune, like when your body attacked your own pancreas, these beta cells, beta cells, that um, that's when it triggered the type one diabetic condition. Yeah, and we don't fully understand all of the triggers. I mean, there's research on, you know, gut factors and dietary factors and viral factors. And, you know, there are about 10% of type 1 diabetics are what we call um, antibody negative, meaning, you know, there are a number of antibodies that we can measure in people, GAD being the most common one that we think is associated with the, you know, type one diabetes. But as far as what the trigger is, we don't know. I have a family history of it, it starting later in life. And mm -hmm. I have the genetics for it. And I also have celiac disease. I was diagnosed with celiac disease in my 20s, although I, you know, probably experienced it throughout my life as a child, you know, my brother and my sister, my brother's about a foot taller than I am. And my sister is like six inches taller than I am. <laughs> So, you know, celiacs played a role and there's a, there's a fairly substantial crossover mm -hmm. with celiacs and type 1 diabetes sharing similar genetics. So, Yeah, and also that autoimmune response, like why you're, you know, with the celiac component there, I'm guessing right. there's, there's probably like and an immune stress, response. Stresses may play a role. I mean, I would say, you know, I, I was, my story is a little complicated. I was overweight in college. Um and about 100 pounds overweight from where I am. Um, and 
ended up losing all the weight and did a lot of competitions and, you know, did long bike races and long multi-sport races. And maybe some of that, you know, had benefit, but there's also some oxidative stress that happens there. And then as a surgical resident, I was a pathology resident during all of that competition stuff. As a surgical resident, you know, basically I didn't sleep for seven years and, you know, so, you know, and then it became a mom and then you don't sleep then. So, you know, all of those things, my husband was in the military and was, you know, deployed overseas during my chief year. So stresses, sleep, you know, all of those things are huge factors. And I think, you know, we see it with patients, but I've seen it really in my own life that if you try and fix one thing without looking at the big picture, it's sort of, you know, like plugging up a dam that's rupturing without, you know, solidifying all of the holes and it becomes important. So, you know, my own ability, I always sort of joke that, you know, it sometimes feels like my genetics are not compatible with life after 35. (laughs) And, you know, I have to make sure to be on top of all of these things if I want to, you know, live this super stressful life that I have as a spine surgeon and keep it in check and be able to be at the top of my game. Yeah. And that's again why I've got you on because you're a a classic N equals one, you know, you're self-testing and you get to biohack and do all these cool things and learn about yourself, your own physiology and how to make your life best. So um, before we get into some of those cool things, things uh just so people can already hear okay so you could have type type 1 diabetes when you get older for a multitude of reasons but then what are some of the symptoms they should watch out for that would make you think you're type 1 versus a type 2 so you know diabetes in and of itself the symptoms are fairly similar in that you know as your blood sugars are getting elevated the common is you don't feel well Um, you're urinating a lot, you're thirsty all the time, you're losing weight rapidly. And even a type two, if they get to that critical stage, will start to lose weight. Um, so those are the symptoms. And then of course, for type one, there's the presentation of decay, which, you know, which is diabetic ketoacidosis, which is where the body, the blood sugars have gotten elevated and the ketones have gotten really elevated, you know, from a keto standpoint, we can talk about all of that. Mm. Um, And the body's in a metabolic acidosis. And that frequently presents like a really bad flu. I mean, there's abdominal pain and nausea and vomiting and feeling awful. And in fact, it can be mistaken as being the flu. Um, And so that's sort of a medical emergency to, you know, be treated if it truly is DKA. Um, which is how a lot of times type one presents. Although we, you know, there's more studies indicating that type one actually is somewhat phasic in that, you know, you can catch it at earlier stages potentially. And that for me was sort of how it happened. I went for an executive physical and I was out actually talking about how to use diet and lifestyle to manage type two and obese um, orthopedic patients. And they did my labs and they said, your A1C is elevated. I was like, well, that's not possible. And they said, well, you know, statistically, you're probably a type two. And it ended up, long story short, it just didn't really fit. And then my body declared itself as, you know, 
a type one. So. Wow. Okay. So it was it just by chance doing executive medical, getting that HbA1c number back and being it way too high and going, hey, what's up on this one what's here? What's going on with this? And I sort of tried to fix it with diet because I didn't want to use you know medications at the, that time. Hmm. And you know I was kind of in that honeymoon phase, so I was able to manage it somewhat. And then as happens with type one, the wheels kind of came off and it became clear that it wasn't. Okay. Type two. I just didn't fit. I had no family history of type two. Um, so like the pieces just didn't fit the puzzle. Okay. And so um, if someone doesn't have access to a HbA1c kind of lab test, could just a simple home glucose test check be a, a simple way also to see if it's getting towards those kind of levels? Would you I say? think home glucose testing, which is readily available for everyone, is a great way for anyone to have an idea of how their body is handling carbohydrates. And so, you know, it's not something that, you know, it's not harmful, although some people get a little too obsessive with their numbers. Um, but it gives you an idea if you, you know, there's the study out, studies out of Israel which show that different people have different reactions to different carbohydrate loads when combined as whole foods. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it can give you an idea of what is your relative carbohydrate tolerance and what foods send your blood sugar too high, even as somebody who's, you know, not a diabetic, I think it can be helpful to have that. We know that fasting blood sugars, there's, there's studies that show that fasting blood sugars over 90 start to indicate an increase in cardiovascular risk. So, you know, the goal ideally is to have a fasting blood sugar be below 90. Um, and, you know, there are other things. Sleep can affect that. Stress can affect that. So, you know, even if people have a diet that seems to be tuned in, if they're not getting good sleep or not getting, you know, they're overly stressed because of cortisol reactions, it can be a good guide for them that, hey, I need to pay attention to this. My blood sugars are elevating. But on the other side of it, we don't, if, you know, I have to check my blood sugars all throughout the day. I don't think it's something that, you know, everyone should focus on all the time, but it certainly for periods of time can give you very useful information, especially if you're trying to lose weight or you're trying to sort of figure out metabolically where you're at. Mm. And also, I'm just thinking if someone is maybe a little bit more rural or remote who's listening to this, and as you said, the symptoms could come across as a cold or a flu. And if you're thinking, oh, it's, you know, as a simple home check, just doing a glucose check, if you have that access going, oh, wow, okay, yeah, my sugars are way too high here. Um, and I feel bad. So I need to definitely call someone. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if you feel bad, it's worth being seen by a physician, even, you know, but yes, yeah, so, I mean, we want to, you know, the, 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 it's a double edged sword the risk of, you know, a lot of home testing. And I say this fully realizing that I do a lot of crazy things myself that make other, you know, physicians nervous. And I would never recommend them for patients just because I'm trying to sort out on my own, like, okay, I'm feeling my way in the dark here. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly elevated blood sugars are a concern for anyone. And it makes you more susceptible to illness and injury and harder to get over an illness or injury, if you you know you're seeing numbers that are substantially elevated, mm -hmm. so I think everybody. I mean, the issue is when we check fasting blood sugar as physicians, 
if you go in for your annual physical and if the doctor checks up just a fasting blood sugar rather than a hemoglobin A1C, you miss people that are actually moving into an area of metabolic concern. Because in fact, you can see paradoxically low blood sugars in people who have fasted overnight if your insulin levels are high. So, you know, if you're a snacker and you're snacking all the time and your insulin levels are already high and then you do, you know, an overnight fast and go get your blood drawn because your insulin levels are high, your blood sugar may actually be paradoxically lower than it typically is. So a hemoglobin A1C is an inexpensive test and is available at any lab and is something that, you know, where you can go, there are ways of ordering these online to check yourself for relatively inexpensive um, if your doctor's not willing, but most are. And then even to take it one step further, you know, fasting insulin levels or even, you know, a glucose tolerance test with insulin levels really give you an idea metabolically of, you know, are your insulin levels too high? Mm. And are you moving into the direction of type two, even if your blood sugars are totally normal, because we know that there's, you know, pathology associated with that. Yeah, I had Dr. Ben Bickman on and he, you know, mm -hmm. talking all about insulin and insulin resistance. And yeah, probably the biggest takeaway on, on that was why not just order an insulin uh, yeah. test just to see if it's it's not in it's not expensive and it doesn't seem complicated so it would you know having, having the, the the glucose level the sugar level and the insulin level those two numbers would probably i guess be very very useful to understand what's going on yes and in a type one or if you're trying to see if the pancreas is burned out then mm -hmm. a c-peptide is the most appropriate test because it's a little protein that comes off um of the insulin sort of again not to get technical into the science of it but you can measure that and it gives you an idea relative to what the blood sugar is is the body producing enough insulin mm -hmm. oh, oh again that's great information for people who may think of oh, am i or aren't i so it's the sugar levels the insulin and requesting the c-peptide number to see if if maybe you are fantastic so um just like a quick little summary before we get into your cool things that you do to manage it on all your strategies. What is the traditional approach then for a type 1 diabetic once you're diagnosed, like the, the management and the treatment versus – because I'm going to use that information to then compare to like what you've found and what but you I, do. So traditionally, the traditional guidelines in the American Diabetes Association are that you give insulin. So there's basal insulin, which is a long-acting insulin. This is injectables. Injectable. Yeah. And then there's bolus insulin, which is the insulin that you give in response to elevated blood sugars or carbohydrate or protein ingestion. Um, although they don't typically recommend it for protein ingestion because you're counting carbs. So the traditional recommendation is a, it varies a little bit, but it's, you know, to have about 30 grams of carbohydrate or more per meal so that you can give insulin to balance out the, to keep, you know, ketones low. And um, part of where the history of that was is we've gotten better with being able to microbolus insulin through the different pumps, but insulin is really powerful in small amounts. It's hard to draw up teeny, teeny amounts. Mm. So it ends up being within a syringe, you can only there's a limit to how small an amount you can draw up. 
And if you give more insulin than either your blood sugar dictates or the carbohydrate that you've eaten dictates, you're going to go low. And a hypoglycemic event can be fatal. And so with the you know, traditional insulin strategies, you had to eat a certain amount of carbohydrate because you had to take insulin so that you could cover your basic metabolic needs. But the issue with that ends up being is it's hard to balance that out. I mean, I, you know, have, I worked in my undergraduate, my degrees in biology and chemistry, and I worked in a biochemistry lab and you know, then I was a pathologist after medical school, and I can't figure out exactly how much insulin to give for an apple. And so, you know, because it matters what you're eating, how much insulin resistance that you have. As a woman, we have different cycles throughout the month, and that impacts all of it. And so, initially, when I was diagnosed, I sort of called it pescatarian paleo, which was, you know, what I was eating at that time. And started decreasing and decreasing and decreasing my carbohydrates. And then I was diagnosed and went on insulin and I initially followed the ADA guidelines, which resulted in I was, you know, 400 one minute and 40 the next. And you feel bad at both extremes. Hmm. You know, being elevated for a long period of time does damage to the body. It takes longer to see that damage happen. A, a you know, really low blood sugar, as I said, you know, can be potentially fatal. Mm -hmm. So after a few weeks of doing that, I was like, okay, this is not working. And carbohydrates are the issue. So it just makes sense to me that if I just limit the carbohydrates that I take, then I limit the amount of insulin that I need to give. And then I'm not going to have these big excursions. Mm. So what, so Carrie, just so I can summarize a little bit there, what I'm hearing is that the problem you and other type one diabetics had is that insulin is so powerful, but we can't give it in such a small enough a dose to give, to make sure that, you know, we don't give you too much. So in one way you have to take a little bit too much. And because you have to take too much insulin, you have to give you the recommendation is to eat more carbohydrate to balance out the issue from taking too much insulin. Is that sort of like what I'm hearing? Yes. Yeah, so with the old syringes, that was for sure the case as far as being able to give the small amounts. Now with the newer pumps, you can give very, oh, very small amounts. Although okay. the, then the issue becomes how fast does it absorb? How much of it absorbs? Is there like there are a ton of factors in, you know, it's it's not a simple you eat 40 grams of carbs and you give this many units of insulin because it's all going to absorb and the carbohydrates may absorb slower or faster, and it ends up being hard to balance. Now, there are some strategies. Steve Ponder, Dr. Ponder, is a pediatric endocrinologist who is type 1 himself, and he's created this sugar surfing. Um, and you can do it where you watch your continuous glucose monitor. So I have a device that puts a little um, catheter under my skin, and it's able to go to my phone and tell me what my blood sugar is. That's like the leaf, uh, lifestyle or leaf style? Fib, uh, yes. I yeah, there's the slight like differences yeah. between them, but, but yes. And so you can watch what your CGM graph is doing and you can react to that and give small doses of insulin or small doses of carbohydrates to do that. And that works. The issue that I have is I'm really busy treating patients and doing surgery all day. And I 
don't have time to micromanage my diabetes all the time. So by not eating substantial amounts of carbs, my blood sugar stays relatively flat and much easier to manage. So when I do give insulin, I give small amounts. So it's much less likely to drive me very, very low. Plus I'm on a ketogenic diet. So I have small amounts of ketones all the time. And we used to think that the brain needed ketones in order, or that the brain needed glucose in order to function. That's not true. The only cells in the body that actually need glucose to function are red blood cells. Um, and so the brain will function just fine on ketones. Um, there's concern again as a type one diabetic because DKA can be a fatal condition. Yeah. What you were talking earlier about the ketoacidosis, that's going to be one of my questions. Like being on a ketogenic diet, you know, you're trying to make these healthy ketones, but if you get too many ketones, then you go into ketoacidosis, which, and so that's so interesting being a type one diabetic. How do you manage that, that those ketone levels to be in health range, not ketoacidosis danger range. So walking around on a daily basis, and I mean, I operate, so I operate in the fasted state. In fact, I find that I'm better, you know, my brain is functioning and, you know, I don't eat breakfast. I have black coffee in the morning. Um, if it's a day when I'm in clinic, I'll have lunch, but a lot of times I just wait and eat, you know, when I'm done with my day. Um, so I'm able to keep my blood sugar again, because it's not, you know, I'm not putting carbohydrate source in. I don't have to worry about, I have my basal insulin. So I have a pump at this point. So my pump, I have basal insulin and it's set at different amounts at different times of the day. Um, and then I have different basals for different times of the month as a woman because. Yeah. With, with the hormones. Yeah. Yeah. With the hormones. So, um, a person who's just walking around, living their life healthy, even as a type 1 diabetic, unless you take a massive dose of... So first of all, let me say ketones are not the problem. Ketones are a symptom or not a symptom. Ketones are something that are me measurable that go along with the metabolic collapse that's happening with DKA. Okay. So if we're healthy and we're doing well and our bodies aren't under excessive amount of stress and we're not dehydrated, low-level ketones are perfectly fine, just like for everybody else. Illness as a type 1 diabetic, even as a low-carb type 1 diabetic, is no joke. You know, you still have to really pay attention. And that's where, you know... Again, with illness, if you can't eat, if you're dehydrated. So ketoacidosis can actually happen in somebody who's not a type 1 diabetic under, it's called starvation ketoacidosis, or there are these newer diabetes medications that can cause a type 2 to go into what's called euglycemic DKA. But it's a bigger metabolic thing than just your body's burning fat for fuel. It's the whole metabolic collapse that's happening. And it takes a substantial trigger, you know. So there are reports of starvation ketosis where people have not eaten for extended periods of time. Their ketone levels got incredibly high and they went into a metabolic acidosis with that. Um, in a type 1, it typically ends up being related to an illness that's caused significant stress. Cortisol levels are elevated. 
glucagon is going up, insulin is not able to suppress the ketones being produced, dehydration is usually a factor. So it's a complex thing that's happening. And we all as type ones have to watch for it. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to downplay that at all. Okay. Yeah, that was good. That was good information there. So <laughs> yeah, you don't want stress, sickness and being dehydrated, being type one diabetic, because that's, that's starting to cause you towards a bad issue there um and ketones are just a piece of that and we happen to be able to measure those ketones so you know on a daily basis my ketones may range anywhere from on the the blood monitor from 0.5 millimole to you know 1.5 or 2 it's when we start to see it in much higher levels that we you know it's something but it depends on what's going on with the whole picture Mm-hmm. As to whether it's you know there are non diet there are non type ones who we've seen in the blogosphere showing you know ketone levels of five and six and seven as a type one diabetic that makes me nervous because we metabolically are different and we can launch very quickly if we let things get that yeah. high but it's not again it's not walking around living your life doing things there's other things that are usually going on your insulin delivery got shut off so if your pump isn't giving you insulin because there's a malfunction with it you can slip into dka without stress or that just because you're not getting enough insulin so it's really about making sure that you're getting enough insulin to help keep the metabolic milieu in check so here's an interesting question that you just got me thinking about you know there's uh, i had dr brianna stubbs um from human in san francisco who makes the the ketone ester drink mm-hmm. would you ever drink that so as a type 1 diabetic i have please no one else out there who's type 1 do this um to play with it i can say that Again, from a metabolic standpoint, I think it's starting, it makes us all nervous. So mm. and I, I know I'm kind of stammering here because, you know, the answer is we don't know the answer, but yeah. the reality of it is, you know, as a type 1 diabetic, I wear a fatal dose of insulin on my body at all times, right? And we give it in small amounts, but you know, type one diabetes is we're, we're acting like an organ. And so I think there is a role for exogenous ketones. I have concerns about anyone taking exogenous ketones with elevated blood sugars, because to my knowledge, there's not a normal state that the human body is in where blood sugars are elevated and ketones are also elevated. Mm. Um, so I'm paying close attention to those studies, I took them, you know, before they were palatable and sort of tasted like jet fuel. And so I just, I don't recommend it. um, So you don't get the same sort of um, cognitive benefits and some of the other things just because of the way your body metabolizes potentially. How high do your ketones need to get to have the cognitive benefits, right? Mm. So if you take a ketone drink and your ketones, you know, go to seven, which I've seen, you know, some of the studies showing, I feel like I can have the cognitive benefits if I'm above 0.5. Um, for my patients neurologically, you know, I use ketogenic diets in my patients because ketones, so beta hydroxybutyrate is, you know, we all know of anti-inflammatories like Aleve and Advil and all of those. 
those are COX inhibitors. And so beta hydroxybutyrate is a COX-2 inhibitor. So it Oh, wow. I didn't actually know that. It also inhibits this NLRP3 inflammasome, which starts the inflammatory pathway, and then it modulates AMPK. So ketones, I use it in patients because it helps to sort of stabilize things from a neurologic standpoint, but it also is, you know, anti-inflammatory. I use it in all of my surgical patients and we're seeing, you know, again, this is anecdotal. We don't have all the data, but anecdotally, I'm seeing people use dramatically less pain medication after surgery. Wounds are healing faster. People are getting back um, into activities faster. And a lot of my patients are obese in type two. So we're using it to sort of stabilize them metabolically, but even non-obese, non-type two diabetic patients are seeing benefit from a pain standpoint. Um, in fact, my husband always jokes that I should give people the ketogenic diet after surgery because we've had quite a few people cancel surgery because <laughs> they got better with the diet. Um, but that's already so, a great tip for people listening. If they, you know, back pain so common in this world and people may be at that stage where they're consulting someone like yourself for potential surgical care and as a simple thing to try it's like yeah your diet can impact your, your back health and the, your pain levels so why it's worth a go right and it's you know it's changing what you eat which you know we can argue that you know i've heard people say that changing someone's religion is easier than changing their diet but we <laughs> do it every day and you know i'm in a busy surgical practice and we you know sort of have it down where i explain just enough of the science and say, here, try this. And it's amazing the number of people, you know, I mean, we're getting people in an orthopedic practice off of their type two diabetes medications. Um, and a lot of them, they're, it's cleaning up their diet so much. And, you know, we're going to talk about this, but I'm plant-based. So for a lot of people, it's actually, you know, they're eating more plants, although I don't typically put my patients on a plant-based ketogenic diet. But they're eating more non-starchy vegetables than they've eaten in their lives. And so there's benefit to that, too, that we can't tease out from this. So they're not eating, you know, the processed carbohydrate foods um, and not having the blood sugar levels. But so so ketones have benefit. If I'm using it from a neurologic standpoint, and again, this is all anecdotal, I can't you know, qualify it. I feel like we have to get people at least in the initial stages where their beta hydroxybutyrate is above 1.5 to start to see true neurologic changes. And there's more of that research that's solid in the epilepsy community. Um, and there's, you know, I, I just tweeted about a study this past week that came out about using the, the ketogenic diet in to prevent damage from a stroke. And so we're seeing these new things happen and what level you need to get your beta hydroxybutyrate to, or even your acetone to. So there's some additional data that the acetone may be a factor as well um, in controlling these neurologic conditions. So we don't have the answers as to how high you need to get them. Mm -hmm. um, but you are, it's, I think it's quite nice to, to hear that you are finding some benefit for patients again. So something out there people might be or may have heard of is like sciatica, like a trap nerve, a pinch mm -hmm. nerve. And uh, again, a, a part of the treatment paradigm to help get a situation sorted is again, potentially even raising your ketone levels could help the pain levels and the and nerve itself, because it is a nerve, um, function better. So I think that's really cool. And that's part of what, you know, treatment wise, I inject, you know, powerful steroids or 
you know, in the epidural space around the nerve roots to substantially calm inflammation. And so from my standpoint, I always talk about the toolbox with patients where, you know, we utilize all of these things together often. So, you know, there is still a role for traditional treatments, but for sure, dietary changes can make a, such a huge difference for patients. And then they come in, they're like, my back pain's better, but so are my hands, so are my shoulder, so are my knees. So, you know, we really do need to better understand how diet really impacts the musculoskeletal and neurologic you know, uh, systems. But it's funny because it's sort of like heresy to say that your diet impacts your musculoskeletal health. And yet, you know, and we know that, for example, a knee, if you lose one pound, that's four pounds off of your knees. And so we're really good at the biomechanics of it, but we really need to pay more attention to the biochemistry of it all and how diet impacts that. Yeah, and I think, you know, that point there, because people people who are carrying a bit of extra weight, they're always told, to, you know, get the weight off and then that will make your joints feel better. But you can have people who are more petite or thinner, but they can still be sore and have yep. hip ache and knee ache and it's because they're inflamed. So. Yeah, what I tell my patients in clinic is that, you know, this diet is, is potentially anti-inflammatory and you may have benefit from it. And weight loss is a side effect that can happen. And I haven't yet had anybody complain about that side. <laughs> so let's, let's come back to your personal story a bit now with type 1 diabetes and the management style. So we've, we've discussed how the traditional management is. And you said that you were on that um like the type of the paleo type diet to begin with. So how did you end up, as you mentioned, a more plant-based diet? And even now, as I believe it's a vegan ketogenic diet, yeah. if you could just guide us all, along that it's, pathway. Yeah, it's a really circuitous pathway. But, uh, you know, I gave up meat for varying reasons when I was 12. And for the better part of 20 years, I was plant-based. And to a certain extent, it worked. It really didn't. There were issues with that. And I didn't do it perfect. And, you know, nutritional optimization is an important, you know, factor in sort of dialing it in. So then in North, you know, I ended up getting the the diagnosis of type one diabetes and I followed the ADA guidelines. And at that point, like I said, I was mostly pescatarian paleo. Um, and then as I was trying to manage it, on my own, I started decreasing my carbs, decreasing my carbs. And that's when I introduced animal proteins back in. And I, if from a blood sugar standpoint, it worked well. Um, and so then I was diagnosed. So that's when I ended up. So uh, timeline wise, it was pescatarian paleo and then really low carb, couldn't get my blood sugars under control. And I was eating like almost zero carbs. So I was almost on the total polar opposite of sort of a carnivore type diet, although I've never done well with eggs or dairy. Um, and so then I went on insulin, went back to the ADA and it wasn't working. And so then I went, you know, more traditional ketogenic diet. And it was after that, you know, I was into it for quite a bit before I found, you know, Dr. Bernstein's work in his book and type one grid and that whole group of type one diabetics that are managing it with a low carb approach. And that was working well, although there are some subtle things that, you know, at times, you know, Dr. Bernstein's approach is 
more low carb, higher protein. Um, I am an individual and this is where it gets individualistic. I don't do as well on higher protein. And I've just found that out through my own biohacking. Um, and I gave it a shot, you know, I mean, I tried the full out again, even once I was on insulin, super low carb. And I just, my blood sugars were great. I didn't feel great. Um, and so I'd increase it a little bit more with a little more non-starchy vegetables. And then I got a really bad virus that resulted in a post-viral gastroparesis. So what that is, is after the virus was gone, my stomach didn't work right. Because why not, right? I didn't have enough going on in my life. And so now I can't eat and I couldn't, you know, when I would eat, it wouldn't move through. And so I had to try and work really hard to get nutrients in. And honestly, it was truly a blessing because I was able to start, I, we did testing on, you know, as my nutrition status was getting worse, we were testing actual amino acid levels in addition to, you know, protein levels and all those things. And I had to learn how to get nutrients in or, you know, if I continued on that trajectory, end up with a feeding tube, which was just not anything I was interested in. So I was able to start with um, like amino acids themselves that I ordered from a special lab and put them into a smoothie. And I was able to kind of get that in. And then to cut it short, plant-based Proteins were easier along the way for me to digest. Again, I tried whey protein, I tried egg protein, and I just don't tolerate those at all. I probably, you know, have some autoimmune reaction to those. And so, you know, I tried adding a little bit of fish back in, and I just am not a huge fan. And honestly, like the reason that I gave up meat when I was 12 is I just don't really like it. Mm. And so instead of, but I had in my brain, I was like, I have to be keto and keto involves eating meat. And finally I just said, why am I pushing this? Let me just do this vegan keto and do it. And it worked really, really well for me. Now, can I say that I'm going to be vegan keto from here to eternity? Absolutely. I can't say that because if I get objective data that, you know, I need to add animal protein back in, or if I develop a taste for it, I would consider it. But at this point, my inflammatory markers are lower than they've ever been. My insulin requirements every day are lower than they've been. My A1C is 4.8 the last time I checked it. You know, so high sensitivity CRP is a marker of inflammation. I could never get it below 1.2. And now it's like 0.3. I mean, it's ridiculously low. Um, I'm in my mid forties and my sex hormones, you know, estrogen, progesterone, all of that are better you know, I was going into sort of early menopause and now it, those have recovered completely. Um, whether it'll stay that way or, you know, once I am menopausal, if it needs to change, then I'll change it. But for right now I'm doing so well, I don't have to worry about weight. Um, that there's no reason for me not to continue this. And it's been an interesting thing because it's certainly not the 100 level course. Like doing keto vegan is 
to some extent easier, but it's trickier at the same time. So some mm. people try and avoid soy. I found that I do very well with soy and I wasn't doing soy initially. The issue with that is the other sources of protein that are plant-based tend to be lower in lysine. So hemp seeds, chia seeds, um, you know, things along those, the nuts and the seeds. I use Sacha Inchi seeds and Baru nuts and things like that. They tend to not have significant lysine. And I will say we've never actually, like, there are very few documented cases of individual amino acid deficiencies. But lysine is one of the essential amino acids. So pea protein has lysine in it. And there are a large, you know, number of pea protein things that are available out there. I try and keep my diet to be as whole food based as possible. So I use black soybeans just the same way anyone would use black beans. Um, and they're very low in carbohydrate. I use lupini beans, which the brining process that's in them, they have almost zero net carbs. Um, and I test that out because carbs can't hide from a type one diabetic. Um, and like those bars and stuff that, you know, I try and avoid the bars because I found too many of those things, you know, they say they have zero net carbs and then, you know, I'm like, I'm 180. What is going on with this? That's not what should happen. So I'm doing really, really well with this. And it turns out there's a whole community and there's a lot of people who say you can't do a ketogenic diet and be vegan. And the reality is you can, you just swap out, you know, the, the protein source for a plant-based source. And I eat a lot of non-starchy vegetables. And I, whenever I, I sort of tell my patients, whenever you eat a non-starchy vegetable, put a fat with it. Whenever you eat a fat, put a non-starchy vegetable with it. You know, we, there are some benefits to the phytochemicals in that yeah. that are in vegetables. So, yeah, I mean, that uh, for me, that's that's fascinating to hear that journey that you went on. And as you said, you know, you're you're, you're doing measurements, and you found that that you know this approach was giving you the right numbers, and you were subjectively feeling better. So it's it's taking the objective data plus the subjective feeling of how you want to feel, and putting them together, and going, I, this I this is how I want to be, and um. It's also interesting to hear because I, I I was wondering um, why you want to be vegan if it was more from a like an ethical point of view that you, from, you know, like um, animal preservation which seems to be the the main reason most people choose it but as you said you just felt you did it's like a taste factor and you didn't perform well on it so and you you, you know you, you're you're going to do whatever makes you feel best so I think I mean, that's good good for people to hear too yeah and from the ethical side I mean you know I'm we have three big dogs and a cat, you know, and yeah, those things are all factors, but I think the ethical side of it gets trickier mm. in the sense that, you know, monocrop farming is a problem and, you know, our whole sort of food agricultural system needs to be shifted over. Um, yeah, that's so, a whole, whole, whole big talk. Yeah, just the whole other discussion on to how do you optimize that? And yes, there are people who want to do keto vegan for the purely ethical reasons and maybe you know and you can there's arguments on both side of it yeah. for me it's just about i was never a huge fan of meat you know if i don't need to eat it why eat it and i mean this is one of the things that because i live in this weird world where i have friends who are you know really outwardly you know delivering the message in the keto community, but also ones who are in the vegan community. And the reality of it is they're not 
both wrong. You know, there are people who do well, although I do have concerns about people long-term from a neurologic standpoint, long-term on a low fat, like a less than 10% fat vegan diet. But the human species is incredibly resilient and we can, you know, our bodies can adapt and adjust to the environment and we can thrive. I think really the, the, the true art of it is figuring out what at this moment in time, because it may change, works best for your body. And in conversation, even with some of the protein scientists, you know, there's concerns. Are you getting all of the amino acids that you need? And there's some new research coming out looking at the gut microbiome and how that plays a role and why is it that the human species is as adaptable as it is that it's really complex physiology and, you know, it's not as simple as, you know. I don't, the more I learn, the more I realize like Occam's razor just doesn't apply to this stuff. So, <laughs> so I want to get a little bit more into the nitty gritty of of also with your testing and what you found. So you mentioned because I, you know, I I follow you on Twitter and you do share some good stuff in there. And what I love about your approach is you just you kind of it's the way I like to think too. You know, you just you're looking at all different points of view, and uh, you, you're not sort of fanatic on on either spectrum of anything anywhere. So you just want to look at you, what works best for you. And so I, I did see that some people kept asking you the question like, so how do you get enough fat? Because you know they would think, but I come from a ketogenic world where you have to eat um, like lard and butter and things right. like that. But like if you're vegan. You don't get to eat butter. So um, it, it's immediately like, how do you get just enough fat? So avocado oil, um, uh, olive oil, um, you know, coconut oil. And, you know, there some people, the coconut oil is a whole sort of separate discussion and this, the fats that are in it. I think, you know, there's the medium chain fats and then there's lauric acid, which is handled differently in the body. I mean, that was one of the fascinating things that I learned by having the gastroparesis was with gastric emptying and how does our body handle these different chain length fats and whether they're polyunsaturated or monounsaturated. Um, so there's avocado oil, there's olive oil, um, you know, coconut butter, uh, you know, raw cacao and, you know, I mean, there's fat in plants. So avocados, I eat an avocado every single day. In fact, I travel TSA and I have gotten to know each other very well over my avocados in my luggage. Um, they actually leave my insulin pump, but like that doesn't throw them. It's, you know, they've started testing food and avocados. So, you know, I carry with me nut butters and things like that. Um, and like I said, avocados and I, there's, I, I haven't had any issue with getting enough fats. I like salad dressing on my salad. So I'll have a big leafy green salad with a bunch of, you know, vegetables on it, shaved Brussels sprouts in it or great. Broccoli is fantastic. Cauliflower. I mean, sort of whether you're vegan keto or not, it sort of feels like we all worship at the, you know, altar of cauliflower sometimes because you can make anything with cauliflower. Uh, and then you put a fat with it. So I actually, you know, Verda, they had a recipe recently for a, a, a vegan butter that uses a little bit of almond flour and coconut oil and some turmeric and some salt. And it's, you know, I don't really miss butter, but that, you know, spreading it on, I have a chia bread that I make that's, you know, made with chia seeds and chia seeds have fat in them. So 
Okay. You know, there's lots of different plant-based sources of fats. Yeah. So, so, so someone who, who is coming from that side, they, they can know, okay, you can actually get enough uh, dietary fat to qualify as like a ketogenic diet yep. point of view. Um, the macros are exactly the same. I mean, yeah. and, you know, then it just becomes, are you somebody who's low carb that does better on high protein or is it moderate protein? You know, where is it optimal for you? And you just plug in the foods. I think, um, you know, and there are different tools out there. I don't know um, if you've seen the Nutrient Optimizer. I mean, that's a great tool that that. Um, what is the Nutrient Optimizer? Yeah, Kendall has a um, program that you can plug in what you eat, and it goes through, and you know, sort of gives you a score for how well you're doing from a nutritional standpoint. The ones that are readily available that are easier, like Chronometer or MyFitnessPal, where you can plug all of that in and what you want your protein, carbohydrate, and fat to be. But I also argue that you want to optimize nutrients. So yes, there is an issue with getting enough B12 on a vegan diet. No question about it. Nobody can argue about it. I have, because of course, why not, an MTHFR variant as well. So, you know, I take, again, I should not be alive. Um, I take a methylfolate, you know, um, and a methylcobalamin supplement, but nutritional yeast, the one that I use that I like, I put it on my food because it gives it a flavor that I like, um, has, you know, it's supplemented with B12. So, you know, the argument always ends up being yes. So yes, I've heard, can you get enough fat? B12 is an issue. I supplement most of my patients because of some research that's out there on omega-3 fatty acids, because people don't tend to get enough of that. I use algal oil. Um, I would probably be fine with fish oil, but again, I'm sort of trying to hold this space and say, can you be completely vegan? And mm -hmm. there are, you know, vitamin D3 plus K2 is something that I also supplement my patients with. There are plant-based D3 and K2 as well. So Japanese natto, which is a fermented soybean, mm -hmm. um, and I may be saying it wrong, but I like it. It's people say it's an acquired taste, but if I put mustard and, you know, soy sauce or coconut aminos with it, I really like it. Um, so that's another way to get K2. Yeah. So there are supplements. I think even under the best circumstances, people struggle to get all of the nutrients in. I worry about some of the people who are doing the pure, you know, carnivore type diet in that they're not getting enough of the nutrients that you need from the organ meats. And so I think we can all benefit, you know, there, there's something to be said for a shift in your diet will make you feel different, sometimes better, sometimes worse. And then the question just becomes, where do you come into that diet from a nutritional standpoint when you start it? And do nutritional deficiencies develop down the road? And for me, the real key is paying it, being dialed into that. And the simplest thing is, how do you feel? And if you feel really great on it, then it's working. If you And if your labs look good, and it can be simple labs and any doc can check. If you're tired and your skin is flaky and you're not sleeping well and your hair is falling out, all places that I've been, or you're gaining weight and you feel like you're not eating much at all, like those are all signs that something needs to change. Mm. Yeah. And that's, again, biohacking, N equals one, test yep. yourself, learn about yourself, find right. out what works for your physiology. Um, so and not get married to it. If it's yeah. working now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't need to, you know, 
adapt and exactly what you were saying too and that's why i love you know speaking to people like you because i i I feel the same you know it it, you know your life changes as your well our hormones change as we age too so our lean muscle mass and a whole bunch of factors or environmental where we are monetary so many things happen in life you know so you don't feel stuck in one sense you you know go with the flow just learn what works best for you um I would also be interested to know, so with with you having access to all your testing that you're doing, um, are there certain vegetables or fruits that are just, you would say, no, no, if you're a vegan keto, just it's probably going to cause you a problem? Yeah, I mean, the carbohydrate content of them matters. So, you know, fiber to a certain extent, and it gets into the nitty gritty of net carbs and, you know, there's two kinds of there's soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. And if we're really truly diving it in, you know, you can subtract some of that from the carbs that are in the food that you're eating. But, you know, in my diet, it depends on what my whole day looks like. I'll have, you know, the low glycemic index berries um, and low carb berries. So there's glycemic index and then there's glycemic load. So as a type one diabetic, I would have to say the glycemic index matters some, but it really is truly the glycemic load. And so um, for somebody who's a type one diabetic, the carbs matter, end of story, you have to cover them with insulin. And so any fruit that has substantial amount of carbs, you're going to have to cover with insulin. And that just starts the whole up down roller coaster if you don't match it accurately. So eating lots of you know, I'm going to bring it up because I, I do notice uh, quite a few people in the vegan community seem to bring up bananas a lot <laughs> for some reason. And I was just thinking, but yeah, a very ripe or sweet banana, that, that, that does influence your glucose level and you would be able to measure that, right? Yeah, I don't eat bananas. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, there's not – because it's going to send me high and it's just a roller coaster that I don't want to be on, mm. right? And it kicks you out of ketosis and there's benefit to being in ketosis. So anything that has a substantial carbohydrate load, like I love chickpeas. I, I would eat chickpeas over a steak and like my whole life. Chickpeas will send my blood sugar through the roof. Even though I'm vegan at this point, I don't eat them because I just don't want to deal with that. Yeah. Um. So low, you know, blackberries, strawberries, raspberries, I'll have a small amount of those and it doesn't, you know, sort of set things out of whack. As far as vegetables, you know, most of the non-starchy vegetables, asparagus, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, you know, those things are fine. Cucumbers, olives, love olives. I eat olives every single day. Um, The black ones or the green ones? What's that? The black ones or the green ones? Bring it on. Okay. <laughs> all of them. I love, it doesn't matter. I've yet to meet an olive that I don't like. Um, and so. Are there any know, vegetables you would say that, so any starchy vegetables like. Um, so the, Potatoes, the, carrots. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll eat a small amount of carrots, but peas, peas are really a legume, but we, corn, which is not really a vegetable, it's a grain, but, you know, so any of those starchy ones, I don't eat again because I'm you know, not wanting to be on that roller coaster. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are, you know, those who find that a super low fat, I mean, if we're talking about changing metabolic syndrome with somebody who has insulin resistance, you can change the primary fuel at either end of the spectrum. So there is, you know, if you eat incredibly low fat, 
you, the body will, you know, utilize the available fuel. And so there's, you know, some data there to indicate that, yes, you can improve metabolic syndrome with that sort of diet. Again, I have some concerns with that. And the other side of it is we don't have long-term studies. You know, this is one of the pieces is I know that my day-to-day feels better. My inflammatory markers are lower. My brain functions really well. I can operate for hours and hours on end and not get tired or hungry or any of the things that happened when I was, you know, low-fat, plant-based. But we don't have long-term studies on, okay, what does it mean to be you know, low carb as a type one diabetic. We just, Mm. we don't have that data. So to be able to put my science hat on and say, Hey, this is great. There's, you know, we have to sort of hedge what we say about that, but I can tell you my day-to-day measurements look like I'm minimizing known risk factors. And I, I saw a, a tweet from someone who I believe is a type 1 diabetic, part of that grid um, that you mentioned uh-huh. earlier. And it was fascinating because that freestyle Libre that you were talking about, where you the continuous glucose monitor. And, and mine's sh- Dexcom. Is the one okay. That I- yeah. So the Dexcom then one, one but um, I, I don't, I can't remember which one it was. But anyway, they, I guess in your, in the community, it's always talking about appreciating your lines or respecting your lines. And so they, she was just showing a picture of someone who is non-diabetic, I guess, was wearing it just to sort of assess their day, which I found fascinating. Right. And they could see like they ate a jacket potato or like a white potato and what it did to their body. You saw the spike, the line, the line yeah. spike. And I thought, yeah, the kind of data that you get access to, it must be so fascinating because someone who's non-diabetic doesn't wear that device. But I think I would learn so much about myself if I was wearing one just and I just ate my normal diet for seven days and went, okay, what did my lines do? Like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, knowledge is power um, and it's different. For, so again, that I, I talked about it before, but the, the research that's coming out of Israel on, you know, what is the response to somebody for a banana versus ice cream? And they saw that people had different responses to those. So you know, one person, it, the banana made them high and the ice cream didn't and the other, it was vice versa. And so, you know, there's, there's variability in that. And that's where, you know, again, from a biohacking standpoint, knowing how these things impact your body is so powerful as far as optimizing your risk factors. So do you have any mentors or people in the vegan ketogenic diets world? Um, Because, you know, I'm sure there's there's going (laughs) to... Yeah, because that's why I got you on thinking, you know, you could be a great example if anyone is considering that. Um, If they... Because there are extra nuances and things to consider, like how they get, get that information. That's why we're doing the interview today. So... So there's a really large growing Facebook group. I mean, it's amazing how many people have been in it and people post recipes and things like that and the admins for the group. So it's called Vegan Keto Made Simple. Um, And there's a lot of great information there. And the number of people, I mean, I think the group's been around for about a year. And the last I checked, which is a a month or two ago, I think there were over 26,000 members in that group. Yes. Um, So it's... The interest is there. I mean, I do have concerns, again, about people making sure with any diet, getting, you know, optimal nutrients with it. And so there's not, again, that's one of the things that 
you know, there's not a great guide out there yet at this point for how do you do low carb vegan, which is why I try and post like it drives my mom crazy. She's like, why are you posting what you eat on your Instagram? You're a spine surgeon. (laughs) And it's because, you know, people want to know those things to give them ideas. And, you know, I'm fairly lazy and eat sort of the same things on a regular basis. So sometimes I have to force myself to come up with something new just to have something to post. Um, And we're talking about doing cookbooks and things like that to give people ideas. But, um, you know, the guidelines are effectively the same as far as the macros and dialing that in. Like I said before, it's just learning how to use these plant sources of protein, you know, and there's benefit. So, you know, then the question becomes from an mTOR standpoint, do you want to make sure that your leucine levels are high enough in an individual meal? So the way I eat um, is I'll have at least one meal a day where my protein load is more than 30 grams um, and my leucine levels are over that sort of 2.5 threshold looking at the the data that's out there. I, I lift weights and I will use a branch chain amino acid supplement once a week. When I do that, do we know for sure all of these answers that this is the best way to be doing it? No, but I'm learning, you know, so what I'm doing now may be completely different a year from now, but at least for now, it seems to be working. Mm-hmm. And I think there's benefit to cycling mTOR, you know, not leaving it on all the time, not off all the time based on the longevity data. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, again, if you're sort of trickling protein along all day and you're doing it from a plant-based way, you may not be triggering that mTOR, um, and sarcopenia of aging, which is, you know, the muscle wasting that happens as a result of aging from a spine and musculoskeletal standpoint is something that we want to try and minimize. So, you know, that's where it's interesting to me, the research that's coming out on, okay, how do we use, you know, meals in order to minimize that and then weightlifting strategies and things like that to sort of maximize the 2B fibers, which are the super fast twitch fibers that help prevent us from falling and breaking our hips when we get older. Mm-hmm. And that's why, again, uh, like I said earlier, all the way when we started the podcast was you look at so many other factors and the type of exercise, weightlifting to stimulate. Um, yeah, there could be so many more good factors we could talk about for type, type 1 diabetes management and what you found, you know, like weightlifting, sleep, uh, I might, yeah, I, might, I might need to get you on again, Carrie, because uh, that's... <laughs> yeah, that... weightlifting and sleep. I mean, if I do a heavy leg day or if I do a high-intensity interval training, my blood sugar goes up and I have to give insulin for that. But it's a different amount of insulin than I give if I would have a food spike with that. So there are strategies around all of that because insulin is necessary to build muscle. Um, and there's a cortisol reaction that happens with that. Long, slow distance, you know, then it's more a matter of you know, I'm keto adapted at this point. So if I do long, slow distance, I don't see the dramatic drop that a lot of diabetics see because my body, my muscles preferentially at this point, it would seem. Um, and again, I fall onto the shoulders with that statement of, you know, Dr. Bullock and Dr. Finney and the work that they've done um, as far as, you know, doing athletic sports keto adapted. And it's not different for a type one. Okay. It is possible. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm not doing a lot of long distance running right now. 
Um, most of my work is high intensity interval training and weightlifting, but you know, I have on this diet and, um, you know, there's, you can, which is a sort of slow release starch supplement. I don't actually like the taste of it to me. It tastes like wallpaper paste, but I could use something like that or nothing and go out and do a long run. And, you know, I bring a couple glucose tabs along with me but not nearly the crashes. You know, when you've got high levels of insulin on board and you go exercise, it's like, you know, turning an amplifier on a speaker and that's when you start to crash. And that's where a lot of type ones feel like they have to have carbohydrate available all the time for exercise. And again, when you become keto adapted, the science changes. And that's where you know, a lot of this stuff, some of us were still sort of feeling in the dark with this and we're relying on the experience of Dr. Bernstein and he, his book is great and type one grit is great. Um, there are things that, you know, not everybody follows the same exact prescriptive things. And so learning where the pitfalls are, learning where those problems are, we need more funding so that research studies can be done so that we can actually know where do people get themselves in trouble as a type one trying to follow this? And, you know, there's not good research studies on it because even at this point, it's still super controversial to say a type one is doing low carb. Mm. Yeah. Well, in your case, you're type one, vegan and ketogenic, you know, so right. <laughs> each one on itself is massive studies. So, and you yeah. combine all three into one. <laughs> I feel very bad for my husband and my children. They're just like, mom is weird. You know? uh, she's unique. Um, there you go. Yeah. So, uh, another quick question would be cholesterol levels. Do they also, you know, so when people, um, a lot, lot of people in the ketogenic community, when they, when they go that route, they may get, as Dave Feldman says, a hyper-responder response. Yep. Does that happen on a vegan keto diet too? What changes um, in cholesterol levels? Have you seen anything? So it can. I mean, um, yes, I don't have enough. I've seen people say, wow, my numbers went up really high. And again, if we look at in the epilepsy community, some of the studies show that there's an initial increase and then, you know, it sort of normalizes out. And then the whole question becomes, what is an elevated cholesterol? What is an elevated LDL? mean um i have never personally had issues that are substantial with ld on cholesterol but of course again to be unique i have a really high lipoprotein little a and so what does all of that mean and how do we you know mitigate any impact with that so for sure fats will raise the the cholesterol and again it's you know what Even plant-based fats. So, fascinating. Yeah, they're still yeah. fats. Yeah. Um, so it can raise it. The question becomes, what is the impl impact of that? And, you know, we, I, there's, there's zero studies out there on what a vegan keto diet means for longevity. Doesn't exist. There is one study out of Canada that showed that um, compared to a uh, and I don't want to quote this wrong, but compared to a low fat plant-based diet and more Adkins type plant-based diet had benefits, um, lower triglycerides, higher HDL, you know? Um, so I, 
it gets nuanced. And then the question becomes, for me, it's more a picture of what's going on with inflammation. If there's a lot of inflammation in the body, that's problematic. Um, and, you know, again, it's a really exciting time to look at what do these different markers of lipids in the blood actually mean when we're talking about true risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I really didn't answer your question, but well, no, you, like you said, you haven't noticed as a change. I was just, I, I think it would be interesting for myself and listeners to hear like in that community. Yeah. Um, Cause I'm, I'm not in the Facebook group. Just do, do people talk about having the same issue? compared to someone who may be on a ketogenic diet that does contain animal animal products, even yeah. someone who's on a plant-based ketogenic diet, they, they deal with the same issues. So to a certain extent, I can say, yes, people ha- do see um, at least transient increases, but just as many people are posting, you know, again, this is all anecdotal and N equals one, amazing lab results. I can tell you whether this is the right thing or not, a preventative cardiologist with my lipoprotein little a being as high as it is said, you know, minimize your LDL. In fact, they suggested a statin and I said, thank you. We don't <laughs> need to talk anymore. But um, the I what I personally have found is plant-based ketogenic versus omnivore ketogenic. There's nobody that would put me on a statin because my LDL is low, my HDL is high, my triglycerides are always lower than, regardless of what I'm on, my triglycerides are always lower than my HDL. Um, And my total cholesterol number is low. You know, I ran stuff through Dave Feldman's program looking at remnant particles, and I was in the lowest, you know, percentage group with that Um, on... The, the vegan keto diet. So for me, I can say that, yes, from if we look at the traditional markers and the traditional recommendations, my numbers all look better mm. um, compared to omnivore keto. But then the question becomes, do we, are we really using those markers in the right way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's the clinical interpretation that we're always learning. And that's what science is trying to figure out. <laughs> and yeah. Dave Feldman. Yes. <laughs> cool. Well, He's doing uh, great. I mean, it's amazing. Like, I think it's fantastic to have all of these, you know, engineers that are weighing in on all of this, because it's a different perspective. And, you know, it's sort of, you know, I like the analogy of the, you know, the blind men feeling the elephant and describing what they're feeling where, you know, we in traditional medical training and allopathic medicine, Western medicine, have this sort of focus that's been passed down over time. And we have a way of looking at things and having people with outside perspectives and different patterns of thinking is amazing. And like branching all of this open in such a fascinating way that, you know, we're going to learn a lot from this. And anybody who pushes back from paying attention to that, you know, is kind of needs to open their minds a little bit more and at least learn and pay attention to what, you know, these different perspectives on, you know, thinking patterns are around all of this. Mm-hmm. Well, I've definitely enjoyed listening to your thinking patterns today. They've been fascinating. Uh, how can anyone keep in touch with you, follow what you're doing? You mentioned some accounts. If you just want to uh, mention those again, so I can put them in the show notes. Yeah, so I have a Facebook account um, that's Carrie Dayulis, MD, uh, a Twitter account. I sort of differentially post different things on those trying to reach different audiences. Um, and then my Instagram is is Carrie Dayulis, MD, where 
you know, I'll post a lot of recipes and things like that. Um, and those are, you know, most of my social media, I try, there's that busy surgical practice thing that sometimes I get really quiet for a while and then. So yeah, I can imagine a patient like, is is my doctor just Instagramming again? (laughs) (laughs) Never Instagram at inappropriate times. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I oh. also am careful if I Instagram about a patient that what I post, maybe it's usually weeks later. Like I, as I'm going through my day, I'll take a picture of something. Um, and you know, I may post it three months later because I'm like, Oh, I haven't posted anything in a while. I need to post something. Mm. And I'm trying, you know, to be a very diligent student of my teenage daughter and learn social media, you know, skills yeah. from her as far as all of that goes because they can just take fi- like selfies and be perfect every time and i take a selfie and i look like oh, you know <laughs> yeah there's a skill to that long arm <laughs> there is and i am not a tall per i'm small so long arms don't work for me. <laughs> well carrie i just want to say thank you so much for sharing your personal story and such great information i mean we've talked about the journey of what causes type 1 diabetes, symptoms of diabetes, um, testing, nuances, you know, ketogenic diet, vegan diet, protein. There's There's been so much information in this episode, which I just want to say thank you for sharing that. Um, and again, I know there's so much more I could probably pull out, but um, I'm going to try keep them keep this just under an hour and a half now so um, anyone still listening to this thank you so much for getting to the end too um, but Carrie yeah I I'll probably get some more ideas and um, so I'll probably want to maybe get you on for another episode if you're willing to do that yeah absolutely I mean I'm thank you so much I'm honored that you would have me on and you know get to talk about all of these you know, fascinating things. and well, Yeah, and it's groundbreaking exactly what you said. You know, you're cutting edge and you're having to test things because there's, there's nothing out there and you need to figure it out. And this is why I love this community because this is how we learn. You know, we, we learn from each other, case studies, and um, then from that we get that pattern recognition going on and go, oh, okay, so there's you get this pattern and sometimes it's here, sometimes it's there, and that's what we need to listen to these kind of stories. Yeah. And every time somebody pushes back against something that I say, which I actually love it because then I go down that rabbit hole of, all right, what is their validity into this? And that's how I learn things. So, you know, we don't really learn from our successes. We learn from our failures. Mm -hmm. And so I welcome people criticizing what I'm doing as much as, you know, being interested by it, because that's how I keep asking questions, more and more questions. So it keeps life fun. (laughs) <laughs> well again thank, thank you so you much for doing this and making this opportunity available to have no, these conversations no problem 